Hello and welcome to On Point. This episode features an interview with Mark McLaughlin, Chairman of the Board at Qualcomm and Vice Chairman of the Board at Palo Alto Networks, a cybersecurity leader working to shape the cloud-centric future with technology that is aimed at transforming the way people and organizations operate. Mark also served as President and CEO of Palo Alto Networks from August 2011 to June 2018. For nearly a decade, Mark has served as a member of the National Security Telecommunications Advisory Committee, which brings chief executives together to provide counsel on national security policy and technical issues to the president and national security leadership. He received his JD from Seattle University School of Law and his BS degree from the United States Military Academy at West Point. He served as an attack helicopter pilot in the U.S. Army and earned his airborne wings. In this episode of On Point, Mark talks about his non-linear career path that started after being medically discharged from the military because of a helicopter accident. He explains his paradigm for assessing work opportunities, advice for military veterans as they transition into civilian business, and how he has balanced his career and family life. Mark emphasizes how veterans can translate their unique skill sets and experiences into jobs and leadership opportunities, the importance of networking with fellow alumni, and how they need to look out for and promote themselves to prosper outside of the Army. Now, please enjoy this interview between Mark McLaughlin and your hosts, Tim Shaw and Lance Dietz. Welcome to On Point. I'm Tim Shaw, class of 2004. And I'm Lance Dietz, class of 2008. And today we're joined by Mark McLaughlin, class of 1988. Mark, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, guys. Awesome. Thank you for making the time. Let's get into our first segment, AAR, or for our non-military listeners, After Action Review. In this segment, I'd like to touch on specifically what veterans can learn from you, your process, and your journey. Could you please talk about your decision to attend West Point? Yeah. Uh, I wish I could say it was something that ran in the family or a lot of guys I know are like that, or, and uh, but not, not for me. Actually, I'm not really sure why I want to go to West Point. The only thing I know is that's the only thing I ever wanted to do. I must have saw a pop-up book or something when I was six years old, but I was laser focused on that. I applied to one school, West Point, and uh, fortunately got in. My mom was very upset with me for being single-threaded like that, but but it worked out. Don't know if I could get in today, but it worked out in 1984. So. I think the motto back in 84 was, be all that you can be. So maybe some army advertising was effective back then. Could be, could be, who knows. What was your experience like at West Point? The old adage, uh, it looks better in the rearview mirror, right? <laughs> As people say that when you're a plebe, right? <laughs> That's the way it feels. My experience overall was great. I think the first year, as for most folks, very, very hard. Actually, at the end of my first year, I was very much planning on leaving. And then my mother came to the rescue and boxed my ears and said, get back up there and at least do another year. And I did. And then uh, that was the best advice I'd gotten. So it turned out to be a great advice. Did my time, obviously, there. Most importantly, met my wife there, which was a life-changing event for me. So it all worked out. So when, you know, measured in the things that mattered in life, I met some great people, got a great education, met my wife, and I got a chance to serve the country. In one of our previous recordings, General McChrystal talked about like his first two years were really rough. And it sounded like your first year was rough. And uh, it seems common takeaways. It's not necessarily how you start, but like how you continue and how you finish. What uh, were the other, I guess, the like, rest of your two years at West Point like? And what did you study and what activities did you pursue? Yeah, my main athletic 
activity was the crew team, which just as a maybe interesting historical note, the Army didn't have a crew team. There was a, a guy who was in class ahead of me, Don Labita, class of 87. We had both rowed crew in high school or rowing. We got there. There was no crew team at West Point. And so we tried to start one and we lobbied and, and got a, a prof to say he would be, he'd be our guy, the coach. And we actually got the crew team started as a, a club sport while we were there. So we did that. Another aside, like today, I'm absolutely amazed and it's in a, in a super positive way. You go up to West Point now, there's a beautiful boathouse down by the river. There's uh, men's teams, women's teams, heavyweight, lightweight, really, really come a long way. But literally this guy and I <laughs> conceived of it and started it and talked the Coast Guard Academy out of giving us one of their old wooden shells. That was the very first shell that we had. And we used to carry it down there on our heads and put it in the Hudson River every morning and, and row. But it was an interesting uh, time, I guess, in that the athletic department West Point really didn't want to have a crew team. So that was something that Navy does. And now it's a, it's a powerhouse, uh, which is great. So just kind of like a historical footnote of, <laughs> if I, you know, got, uh, got to do anything really interesting. West Point probably got to start the crew team with Don. It was great. So if I could go back to one thing you said, Mark, about your first year being hard, what was it that was most challenging? Yeah, I'd say nothing that anybody would be surprised, right? Nothing unusual. I knew exactly what I was getting into. Unlike, I was kind of surprised when I got to uh, Beast Barracks. The folks that got there had had not visited beforehand, came all the way from California or something. I was from Philadelphia. I really had no idea what they were getting into. I knew exactly what I was getting into. So for me, it was just tough, right? And a big part of that was the academics was very hard, as, as you guys know, particularly in your first year trying to get everything done. So um, there was nothing in particularly bad other than plebe year, right? And like I said, fortunately, I got uh, great advice, stuck it out, and you know, didn't never look back right after the first year, as, as a lot of people did. When you were thinking about leaving, Mark, how much of a plan did you have in place? How detailed was it and how far along was it? Oh, I was like, I was way down the path. It was uh, right. It was Christmas, right before Christmas. I was sure I was leaving. <laughs> and uh, I applied to, applied and got accepted or, or like an early acceptance to uh, two schools, good schools. And um, even a couple of the, my profs even wrote letters of recommendation for me because I said, it's just not for me. Right. And Came home for uh, Christmas break and was sitting in the kitchen. I told my mom, no, you know, I don't think so, right? I'm going to go to University of Pennsylvania, and, <laughs> which is a great school too. <laughs> and, and she literally just, I mean, I'm not, I'm not making this up. And she said, looked at me, got a very solemn look in her face and said, you are a horse's ass. And like really got my attention, right? And she said, you go, you're, you get back up there. <laughs> And you finish your first year. If you want to leave at the end of your first year, call me, but not halfway through. Don't be a quitter like that. And like I said, best advice I ever got as far as uh, West Point went back. And, and it was great. It was after, after right, actually right after Christmas, right? Everything started to get better. So words of wisdom. <laughs> In the Army, you flew Cobra attack helicopters. What went into that decision and what was your experience like? Well, let me start in the second end of that question because the experience was short because um, unfortunately I had an accident and I was medically discharged after just two years. But as far as going into the decision, this might be humorous, I don't know. But uh, when I got to the academy and after decided I would stay in, then I was turned into the gray hog. I was hoo-yah. <laughs> 
just wanted to do everything, uh, you know, everything the Army had to offer. Airborne, I went to airborne school, did it all. Had a sort of in my line of sight, Ranger, all that kind of stuff. And then we were off, I guess it was the summer, of uh, Buckner summer. And it was unusually rainy that summer. It was really bad up there. And so we spent a lot of time, you know, in field exercises and stuff. And and I just remember being pretty miserable, I'll, like sleeping in the water and the, the ditches. <laughs> so I started thinking, if you want to be in the Army, which that's all I ever wanted to do, and you want to have a great career, you need to be combat arms, right? I, or ideally, you'd be combat arms. So I was like, I wonder what the wonder what combat arms aspect of this there might be where I don't have to like sleep in a foxhole every night. Right? So, I'm like aviation, I don't do it. So I decided I was going to be an aviator. That was that was my primary reason for that. And then fortunately, I was able to branch aviation, and that's how I got down to flight school. And that's actually kind of back to what I was saying about um, best things in going to West Point. One of them was Karen, my wife, who we've been married for thirty two years now. She's class of 88. We actually didn't know each other at school, but we met in flight school. So that was another great decision on my part that I wish I could really uh, attribute to anything wise on my part. <laughs> worked out well for me. So it seems like you were born and raised in Philly, went to West Point, flight school and probably Rucker, and then, right. and then you went to law school in Seattle. Can you talk about your decision to pursue law? Because there are some veterans who I think after their transition, they either go law school or business school. I mean, those are like, that's broadly saying it, but I'm curious why, why law school? Yeah. So some of these things I've, I've given you already are, are just kind of the way they happen, maybe a little humorous, but that's how they happen. But this is an important point, really. And I, I actually do a lot of uh, coaching for vets transitioning and I've done a lot of work in my corporate life in trying to help vets transition. And I still talk to a lot of vets today who are transitioning. And I think people tend to, if they see somebody and they say, hey, you guys you know, have done well for yourselves and you made that transition successfully. And it looks like, oh, you must have had some plan and you executed to your plan because if, if that was the case, life would be easy, right? You come up with a plan, you work hard and achieve. But I don't think that's really the kind of way it works out a lot. So for me, the only thing I ever wanted to do, like I said, since I was a little kid, was go to West Point and I wanted to be in the Army. That was it. And one night that ended on a night vision goggle mission and um, literally it was, it was over, right? And so everything that I ever wanted to do ended very quickly. And, uh, and then I was out of the Army, physically disabled, you know, or d- disabled vet out of the Army. And I had a really, really hard time finding a job. And at that time, today, the idea that people would, I'm going to use the term discriminate against a vet, let alone disabled vet, is very hard, kind of hard to imagine today, right? But wasn't back then. And I felt like I just couldn't find anything, any fits for myself. And um, so I, I needed to do something. And I decided to go to law school because I thought, you know what? I didn't have a really big hankering to be a lawyer. But I thought um, I need to be able to support myself, and ideally, I want to get married, and have a family, and so I need a profession, right? So I decided to go to law school, and um, was able to go uh, to, to school up in Seattle. And Karen, at the time, was still she was still flying at Fort Rucker, so we were able to stay together, which was great. And I went to law school, but that put me onto a different path. Like my joke with my my older kids today is, I was never able to keep a job. I had my first profession; I was in the army, ended. Then I became a lawyer for that simple reason. I needed to make a living and was able to get into a great law firm in Silicon Valley after I graduated and was on a a track of being told, hey, you're doing great work. Stick with this. You're going to be a partner. It's going to be great. 
that's sort of the height of the ambition there. If you're going to be a lawyer, did that for a pretty short period of time, just a few years, and then had another opportunity come up. So my my career path that to bring me to like this afternoon has been very nonlinear <laughs> and, and mostly because opportunities presented themselves and most importantly, an opportunity presented itself and somebody took a chance on me. And that's really the point I was trying to make, right? Is somebody took a chance on me. And in every single case where I, I wasn't the person when you looked at the resume that you would say, oh, you're a dead ringer. I'm going to take you. But they gave me a shot to do something, that, and it worked out. If it worked out for them, worked out for me. And so that's my big message now to folks who are transitioning out: is don't lock yourself into a life plan, something like that. That you know you feel like you're off course, uh, or you're failing if things don't work out exactly like you thought they were going to work out. Do a ton of networking; it's super important. That's actually how stuff works in life. That's actually how opportunities present themselves. You have to work really hard to get the opportunities and executing the opportunities to do a lot of networking that way. And don't be discouraged if you feel like you're on a nonlinear path to something. Many times in, in my life, for sure, most of the best things that happened to me weren't planned. They were something happened, something presented itself, somebody took a chance on me, and then I went in that direction, and it worked out. I've got two notes on this. One is very inspirational. And I mean, I think this is great. And because a lot of transitioning veterans listen to this podcast, and they're thinking exactly the same questions both you and I thought about, which is, I just need to get a job, I need to figure out what I'm going to do, am I actually going to be able to support my family. So that's amazing. And second is you mentioned how you talk to a lot of veterans. And I mentioned this every now and then when I email you out of the blue. But Back in 2011, I emailed you out of the blue. I was at Stanford mm -hmm. Law School and I was like, okay, wait a second. I'm in law school doing a dual degree, but I'm not really not sure what I want to do. And asked, hey, could I meet? You were the CEO of Palo Alto Networks and you took the time and can't thank you enough for being on this podcast and helping veterans. Over to you, Lance. Mark, could you just walk us through your career quickly post-military and we'll double click on a few things as you do that. So I went to law school, like I said, and I, I got out of law school and I was able to talk myself into a job down in Silicon Valley with a, a leading law firm down there and uh, fortunately got the job and then uh, practiced law in the law firm for literally 365 days. And on the 365th day, I left <laughs> and not because I was working really, really hard, but being at the right place at the right time is super important in life and a lot of opportunities opening up for people. So that was 1994. I was in Silicon Valley. That was pretty much the beginning of the internet as we know it today. That year, Netscape launched its first browser. And it's the beginning of software as we know it. So there was just an explosion of innovation and uh, business formation going on in the Valley. And I happened to be working with this law firm. And I did so much work in that first year that it's because there was so much work to be done that one of our clients asked me if I would join them in-house instead of being at the law firm. And so I, I over the wall, became the general counsel of a small software company, which was kind of nutty for them. I told them, like, if you're stupid enough to take a guy who's one year out of law school, this is a publicly traded company, right? If you're stupid enough to be take a guy one year out of law school to be a general counsel, I'm stupid enough to take the job. And I did, and they did, and it worked out okay. So then I ended up practicing for um, a couple of years as an in-house attorney. 
And then realized during that, as a lot of corporate lawyers do, they spend time working on deals and working on venture financing and IPOs and mergers and acquisitions. And I really enjoyed the substance of all that stuff. And I found myself more and more being more part of like the negotiations and discussions than being the lawyer or actually doing dual duty. And um, I thought I want to be conceiving and working the deals as opposed to just being the attorney on that. So I decided that I was going to recreate myself there and not be a lawyer. And by the way, and Tim will appreciate this with your, your joint degree there. The other group of people that I spend time giving some advice to and coaching to is attorneys who want to become business people. <laughs> and because uh, it's, it's not a exact linear path either. Uh, so anyway, I was able to um, go find a startup. I talked myself into that startup and I told them, hey, I would like to join you guys, but I want to be the business development person, not the attorney. And they said, we don't care what you call yourself as long as you do our legal work. So I said, okay. <laughs> so I did the league work and it was the business development guy. And uh, that was really kind of the first time I was doing non-legal work. And uh, a short story on that was that company got bought in the height of the dot-com boom by a company called VeriSign. And when that company was purchased, then um, I was asked to run that company inside of VeriSign, which was my first general management job where I owned a P&L. I did that. Lots of details in there, I'll spare you, but about eight years later, I was the CEO of Verisign. Mark, just a quick question there. Having that experience with the transaction when the company was bought by Verisign, had you thought about you know, ever going to the investment side of the house at some point as well? Yeah, I think a lot of people like operators. You know, I consider myself an operator, right? I'm not an investor. And, and I think a lot of operators have a tendency at some point in their career, multiple points in their career, where say, hey, I'm going to go onto the investment side as opposed to be an operator. And for some people that that works out, but for a lot, it doesn't. Most, I'd say it doesn't, right? And um, there's reasons for that. So I made some money in that deal, which was fine. And then I thought even, I thought then maybe I'll, you know, go do some venture work or something like that. But in like, in an introspective way and talking with people, I think that being an investor, whether it's private equity or venture, or being a Wall Street guy, or being an operator is sort of like a player coach. And they're both super important for the team to win. And operators tend to like to be players, um, or they, they want to be on the court, right? And they want to be calling the plays and making decisions that are in the game every day. So they tend not to do really well when you get into investment side of things, because the work on the investment side is more uh, diverse, Right. So today I'm working on, if you're a venture person in private equity, today I work on this company, tomorrow I work on this company. And you can be part of the, the team, sort of, but you're not really in the trenches. Right. And so I think it's super important. This is advice to give the people to say, hey, know what makes you happy. And if you're good at something and you're happy doing it, you should do that. And don't get sidetracked with things that people tell you, oh, you should go do this now, or you think you want to jump over the fence to be an investor or you're an investor and you want to jump over the fence to be an operator that works out, but not a lot. And, and I think it's because you're sort of going against your DNA. So anyway, my DNA was more on the operator side and uh, the few times in my life where I thought, Hey, maybe I'll go to, uh, on the investment side. Fortunately, I reined myself back in and just said, that's not really, you're, I'm not a good investor. <laughs> like that's just one, I probably wouldn't be any good at it. And two, it kind of cuts against the grain about what I like to do. So. 
So you joined VeriSign. What was that experience like and how did that lead to the Palo Alto Network opportunity? Yeah, the VeriSign thing was, again, kind of nonlinear. But as far as I did a lot of jobs inside of VeriSign, I actually left the company. Then I was invited back to run it. So I did that. But I had to say that one piece there about left because I I decided to take some time off, which is super smart for me, by the way. And, And another piece of advice I give a lot of people these days. I had this opportunity at that time in my life. I had two young children at the time. Now I have three. And to to take a little bit of time off. And I ended up taking a year off. And it was probably the most important thing I did ever in my career because it was the only way for me to actually think about things. So during that year I took off, I was just fortunate to be able to do that. Palo Alto Networks, the guys from Sequoia and Greylock, who I knew, who were the funders of the company, they called me and said, hey, we've got this great company, small, growing like crazy. Would you like to look and be in the CEO? And at the time, Karen and I, with our two kids, we lived in uh, Leesburg, Virginia. We had been in Silicon Valley. We moved to Virginia with as part of the VeriSign thing. Uh, lots of details, it doesn't matter. But we lived in Virginia, right? And I traveled for eight years, every week from Virginia to Silicon Valley, every week. Right? And, and the reason for that was Beristine was half in Virginia and half in California. So I back and forth, back and forth. I did that for a long time. But anyway, so we were, we were in Virginia. My kids were being, that's that was their home. That was where their friends were. So I interviewed for this Palatine Networks job in 2008, and I got offered the job. And I really wanted to take it. Because during that year off, and I, I could do a whole podcast on this, and I think, Tim, you and I went through this back in 2011. <laughs> but I came up with a paradigm on how to think about things. Because most people go through their career, and most people will make let's put more time into the decision about what next car is they're going to buy than what the next job is. And I, I literally mean that, right? So I spent that time coming up with a paradigm about if you – saw a good thing, how would you know it? Because most of us take get jobs because somebody calls you and says, hey, I got something you're interested in. And then you kind of get into the flow of that. Next thing you know, you get an offer and you're working there. But you, you really don't, you really didn't under, understand whether that was the best thing you could be doing right then, right or not. So anyway, I came with that paradigm and uh, Palatine Networks hit every single bell and it rang every bell. I knew that it, it not guaranteed winner, but it had a lot going for it right, under my paradigm. I wanted to take the job. I came home, I asked Karen and I said, and the kids who were at that time, like eight and six, let's move back to California. Daddy's going to take this job. And they said, yeah, if that's really what you want to do, we'll do that. But we don't want to do that. We like it in Virginia. So I declined and I didn't take the job. And as the world turns, I actually went back and ran Verisign right, for the next three years. And I thought that was my one shot I had kind of thing. But, and I had to tell you the whole story to make another point, perhaps for people as they're thinking about career transitions and jobs and things like that. I never looked back on that decision at the time because I was pretty sure that when you're, if 75 to 80 years old and you're thinking back on your life, what do you want to be thinking? Like I uprooted my family, moved them across the country. And they're all in counseling now, but I got to do the job I wanted. So I didn't do that. And it was really hard for me to say no, but I did. And it was the right thing for the family. As luck would have it, three years later, I got that phone call again about Palo Alto Networks. That now was 
bigger company, not not huge, 250 people, but on a good, solid growth basis, could be a public company with a little more growth to it. And it came around again. And I guess the second time, and I went home and said, hey, I know the answer is probably no, but I got to ask. And, uh, you know, the kids were a few years older. And at that point, they said, yeah, that'd be fun to go back to California. <laughs> right? So, like, you never know. So I said yes. And we packed up, went went out to Silicon Valley. And, and I took the job at running uh, Palo Alto Networks, which was a fantastic opportunity for me. So that's how I got to Palo Alto Networks. Your comments there, Mark, remind me of the episode with Stan McChrystal, in which he said something very similar about thinking through and prioritizing the things that are most important to you early in your career as it relates to work and life. You know, I've had Stan come in and talk to a couple of companies, you know, Palo Alto Networks a couple of times. And so I would absolutely concur with that. It's it's really important. Know, know why you're doing what you're doing is really important. Everybody, well, everybody says family first. Everybody. Right. I've, my observation is very few people do that. And we have a great ability as humans to rationalize um, our decisions as to why a decision that may not be the best thing for your family is the best thing for your family because you're going to make a lot of money or, or whatever, whatever the rationalization is. Right. So I completely agree with Stan on come up with whatever your priorities are and in a very thoughtful way and then stick with them. It's really hard to stick with them, but stick with them. You'll you'll be a much more peace in your life. Mark, as you were thinking through these decisions, were there any others outside of family that you went to for advice? I have taken advice from a lot of people in life, and uh, I think that's a really good thing to do. And my two cents on this for folks as you're thinking about that is you're thinking about choosing a mentor or, or trying to be mentored. I think it's way more important about, I'm going to say, the substance of the individual as to what attracts you to them than whatever the surface is. And what I mean by that is if you said, hey, I want to get mentored by somebody because they're really successful, that is probably the most shallow level (laughs) to connect with somebody on. And I've had, not a ton, but I've had a few people in my life who've been very good mentors. But the uh, the common thing, the thread for all of them was uh, they understood what was important to them and their families. They were thoughtful about things. They didn't get wrapped up in the uh, the more bigger, better rat race, like I call it. Like, I just got to, I got any more, any more, any more. They were very successful, but they did it on uh, terms that, that made sense for them and their families. And as opposed to trying to please other people and trying to be important in the world to other people, as opposed to being important to the people who are going to be with you your whole life. And that was the commentary that that's what attracted me to them. Like as I got to know them and they became mentors, it was that piece of it when I heard them and understood their personal lives, not just their professional lives, where I said, that's, that's wisdom. I'm hearing wisdom, right? And uh, be wise to to adopt that and to take as much of that as you can get from folks. So I I'm strongly encourage people to connect with you know folks in their lives where they say there's a connection on a personal level that I like, no matter what the professional side looks like. And Mark, you joined Palo Alto Networks in 2011 and took it from, I think, about 200 million in revenue run rate to 3 billion when you left in 2018. Just incredible growth. What was that experience like? Yeah, so probably the most important part of that is something I alluded to a little earlier, which was it's really helpful 
to be kind of right place, right time, you know, in a, in a rising tide. I, 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 there's a lot of very hardworking, smart people in the world. And that's, that's important to succeed in life. And then it certainly helps right? <laughs> if you're in a great team on something that actually really matters at that time, like cybersecurity. And in 2011, cybersecurity was very early, actually, the way it's only been 10 years, right, today. Now it's a really big deal, but it was pretty early. But you could tell it was going to be a big deal. And the, the founder of the company, Dear Zook, Lee Clarich, who runs all the technology still, these guys are still there. Um, they knew exactly what they were doing and had a lot of conviction. And I could sense that in talking with them. And um, so there was a lot of, of vision there on, hey, if we can do the following things, this could be a, a very a company that could have a legacy, right? Not an important company. Not everybody's getting rich. None of that. It's, we're going to do something good here, right? A legacy company is going to outlast all of us. And that was really the, the, how we kind of thought about things and designed things. So joining the company is about 250 people. Just closed a $50 million run rate quarter, which is great. Grown very, very, very fast. And then interestingly, the mission was take it public. I think that's very short-sighted. And uh, so to the investor's credit for the company, the team's credit for the company, I was brought in because I was a public company CEO to take the company public. It was ready as far as its growth rate and size to go public, but it wasn't ready to be uh, a legacy company. And so I came in, did my 90-day tour, and came back and told the board, yeah, we're not going public. What are you talking about? That's why we got you. <laughs> you know? And I said, here's what we need to do. And to their credit, they said, okay, you know, we think this can be a legacy Silicon Valley company. Go do it. And uh, so we took those steps, and then we delayed the IPO by a year. Got things, got the team right, got the processes right, got things right. But most importantly, got the, the, the company on a course with a vision and a culture that is very, very strong and still exists today. And then from that, we were able to grow very quickly. At the time when lots of people were doing M&A to try to cobble together solutions for cybersecurity, we didn't buy anything uh, for seven years. We built everything ourselves completely contrary to what the market wisdom was. Every investment banker in the world is telling me, you don't know what you're doing. You got to go out and use your market cap. But, and um, that wasn't the right technical answer for the problem. So in 2018, when I decided to step down, like you said, we were doing about the $3 billion in uh, run rate publicly traded company. That was entirely organic, which is very unusual, right, to, to do that. And I, I just had the, an amazing time, an amazing opportunity. I, I traveled the world. I worked really, really, really hard. I describe it to people today when I, when I coach CEOs who are on hyper-growth companies. I said, it's like standing on a marble or trying to, right? And um, you got a lot to do. But those things are once in a lifetime. And if you can be associated with one, like back to my paradigm, I'm like, this has got a shot, right? To be associated with one, it's an amazing experience. And then just to jump ahead a little bit, in 2018, just on the personal side, Karen and I said, we've been married 32 years. We have a uh, daughter who's 25, works at Zoom, and then a, a son who's 22. And then um, when we were 45, we had a late-in-life baby, <laughs> so, Andy. And uh, Karen has uh, homeschooled our kids, all three of them. And that was her career. By the way, she's graduated much higher in a class at West Point than me. She's way smarter. She's a nuclear physicist. She flew. She was a better pilot than me, right? <laughs> you know, 
MBA from Berkeley, super, super, super intelligent driven lady. And, and to her credit, she dedicated her professional life to schooling our children. And so I realized uh, when Andy, our youngest, was, he's just about eight years old, which was in 2018, that, um, you know, I'd really, I was never home. Like I, I was having a great time at work. It was very successful. I wouldn't trade that professional experience for anything. But I realized with my older kids who were, they were gone. They were in college and gone. And the difference between, I realized between seven years old and uh, 17 years old is, and this is a piece of advice for people who are younger listening, the difference between seven and 17 is about 10 minutes in hindsight. And I wouldn't trade that professional experience, but I kind of got, I got a third shot at it, if you will, right, with Andy. And uh, so I went to the board and I said, I know you don't want to hear this, uh, but I need to, back. this is kind of back to family first and priorities. I said, I, 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 uh, I can't do this anymore. And uh, not, I can't do it anymore. I choose not to do it anymore. And, and I want to, I want to homeschool my son. This is long before COVID, right? I want to be part of that and um, really be part of his life in a way that I, didn't, you know, get the, uh, uh, that I wasn't, I shouldn't say didn't get the opportunity. I chose not to be right. I was working all the time with my older kids. And uh, so that's why I stepped away in 2018 uh, from the CEO role and chairman role there. I'm still the vice chairman of the board and still very involved with the company and, and they're doing great. But that's why I, at a relatively young age, like 50, uh, 52, decided to hang up the operating spurs, at least, at least for a while. It's been four years now, right? to to do what I do today. So when people ask me, what are you doing today? I say, I'm a teacher, Monday through Friday. That's what I do. And uh, around that, I have some professional activities that I enjoy as you know, chairman of Qualcomm, vice chair of health and networks. I'm on the board of Snorkel. I'm still on the National Security Advisory Council at the White House. I've got a number of things that I like doing, but they all get baked around Monday through Friday through certain hours where I teach. Mark, and before I pass it back to Tim, wanted to ask you about your experience working with the likes of Sequoia and Greylock, some of the best investors in the world. What are some of the characteristics that you admired most about investors and board members? Yeah, there's a lot of venture firms in the world. So I think as with most things in life, it actually comes down to the people. So the two primary investors in Palatine Networks were Sequoia and Greylock. Those firms are outstanding. You know, their track record speaks for themselves. So it doesn't take me to say that. But my observation of the firms and then the individuals there is kind of, I'm going to call it back to this paradigm. They actually studied their own business, venture capital. And in every opportunity they saw to help their companies improve, they took it. They were some of the first ones to bring in people on board to have their own HR advisory staff to say, hey, let's help you recruit. And they just kept doing better and better and better. And by by upping their game each time, they distanced themselves from other uh, firms. That being said, it all comes down to people as well. And the you know giant blessing for me was to have Shim Chadna from Greylock and Jim Getz from Sequoia be on the board. They're the two guys who hired me, along with Nirzuk, who was the founder of Palatine Networks, but they're the guys who brought me in. I owe a lot to them. And they're just outstanding individuals and outstanding investors in outstanding firms. So back to kind of, if you want to, if you want to stack the odds in your favor in life, get get into something that's growing like cybersecurity that was then and still is today with outstanding people who know what they're doing. You need to work hard. You need to do a good job. But you get a lot of help from these folks. 
And those two guys in particular have been uh, extraordinary. As a side note, almost never happens. Both of them are still on the board of Palatin Networks. They've been on the board of Palatin Networks for, I want to say, 16 years. So, and Tim, as a venture guy, will appreciate like that's super unusual, right? Super unusual to have venture guys be on a board at all for that long, or let alone a public company. But um, I think they realize importance of Palatin Networks and importance of cybersecurity, and they're they're enormously impactful on the board. In my my life, I was super blessed by running across those two individuals and then having a, you know a professional and a personal you know, friendship relationship with them for a very long time. Amazing. Let's get into our next and third segment, the SOP or standard operating procedure. In this segment, we're going to talk about the personal routines, habits, and words to live by that have been instrumental to Mark's success. What routines or habits did you have from the military, West Point, law school, or as a CEO, or as now a coach, mentor, teacher that you still adhere to? You know, I, it's interesting, Tim. I'd say um, I'm going to throw out there work hard, and uh, that's such a trite thing, but I'm not trying to be self-effacing at all. I'm like, I'm not the smartest guy in the room. I'm fine. Like I understand how business works right? and, and, and how, how to relate to people. But because of that, and I knew that back at West Point, I got my butt kicked at West Point on academically, particularly in the hard sciences side. But I, I, I knew then and kind of kept with it that if, if something didn't work out for me, like it was going to you know, fail at something. I never wanted to say it was because I didn't work hard enough. And so use Lance with your basketball background, like leave it on the court, everything on the court at the end. And uh, so I, I definitely put that there. And, and West Point, as you guys know, really instills that in, in folks and also forces you to uh, work on time management. If you're a very, very busy business person and certainly the CEO of a high growth public company, it's like being a plea. There's not enough time in the day to do everything. So what are you going to do and prioritize? And so I, I'd absolutely say that's critical, which is to be a, a hard worker and don't don't assume that your your intellectual horsepower is going as good as it might be is going to carry the day. There's a lot of smart people in the world, right, who <laughs> that you're up against. So hard work for me is one of them. Um, and uh, then the other thing too is just this prioritization we keep talking about, or, or the paradigm or the priorities, whatever you're going to call them. But for me, trying to figure those out and then recalibrate them at different times. That was very important. And on that, some advice I give today, so this will sound very tactical, but I think it's really important, is it's really hard to think well about something when you are moving a million miles an hour. And so a habit that I did not have, but but I picked up after time that I would encourage people to think about is particularly like in the morning. My habit was to get up, roll out of bed, I would grab a cup of coffee, I'd go out into my gym, hop on the elliptic curve, whatever, flip on Jim Cramer, listen to him. And while I was checking my email at the same time, emailing people and texting them while I'm listening to how the market's going, whether Palatin Networks is mentioned, all that stuff, you know, and then that's kind of my whole day, right? That was exactly what my day looked like until I checked my phone one more time before I hopped in the sack at midnight. And that was it. And uh, that's a really tough way to go through your day, <laughs> particularly if your day is like seven days a week, which it is a lot of times and leaves let- very little room for you mentally to to think about anything, your family, your health, anything, right? So it was really, really hard for me, but the habit I picked up from advice from some mentors I got, right, was um, don't do that, you know, 
when you get up in the morning, go get your cup of coffee and and then do whatever your thing's going to be. Mine is I pray. You could meditate, but just be quiet for a while. Like the, give yourself 15 minutes in the morning. Just sit quietly. I don't know, right? Whatever's going to work for you. Before you look at your phone, before you turn on bad money, just 15 minutes. And, and I, 15 minutes is a huge amount of time in, in day. Before you exercise, just something, right? That you can kind of collect yourself and think about the day. Think about what's important in your life. Think about all the people you're going to meet today and uh, what a difference you can make in their life. They might make in your life, right? I know that sounds really kind of soft, but for, for me, it made a dramatic uh, difference about how I went about my day right after that. And I was just much more peace during the day. And then do that again. For, for, for me, I do it again before bed as well. So everybody's asleep. I take my 15 minutes, right? And just recollect, think about how the day went and try to come down a little bit, if you will, off the adrenaline. Because if you don't, yeah, you're just constantly on the on the treadmill of just this adrenaline high. And it's, it's if nothing else, it's going to burn you up physically, if not mentally. Just give it enough time. It's definitely going to happen. There's two things that you said that I want to riff on or maybe reflect on. One is this will give plebes a lot of motivation. You said public company CEOs are kind of like plebes in the sense that hardworking, no time. And so I think that'll give a lot of people a lot of just inspiration. And then the second thing you said actually reiterates a lot of what our guests have said, which is hard work. And that's just, I think that's the mantra for every single guest we've had. And then the last note is on the spiritual aspect, Ben Fall, class of 2007, who I think you also know, he really emphasized that also on the podcast, said that you have to get your spiritual, physical, and mental right. And um, he said you can get 2x out of life if you do some journaling and reflection. And sounds like that you're also doing that. I would strongly agree with Ben on that. And yeah, I, I, I call it mind, body, spirit, right? And they all matter. And when you're when you're younger, you were all, you know, you come out of West Point, we're all six, five and bulletproof. And uh, you can, you can power your way through anything. That's what, that's what it's all about. It's just like, Hey, that no mountain's high enough. And you can like your, your absolute peak, you know, physical, maybe mental, and you can power through a lot of stuff. You know, that's not going to last forever. And more importantly than not going to last forever, whether it's from the physical stamina or the mental stamina is there's all these trite old sayings that we hear, but as I you know, get older, I'm like, hey, there's tons of wisdom in these things. Like, if you don't know where you're going, it doesn't matter how fast you get there. And uh, then there's a whole bunch of stuff in the bugle notes, right? I don't know if they're still studying bugle notes, but whole stuff, bunch of stuff in there that actually is really, really important as life lessons. But you don't get that right at all when you're in the moment. And later on, you'll get them. And so I, I would I strongly encourage folks to to manage all three of them. And the one that, the one that tend to go by the wayside is spirit, you know, a lot. And, and I'm not, I'm not being a commercial for anything. It's like, however you get there, it's absolutely important that you get there because it is the basis by which you will deal with everybody else in your life. I, I tell my older kids, I'm like, you can't be good with other people unless you're good with yourself and you can't be good with yourself unless you're good with God. Now you can replace God there with whatever you want, but we spend all of our time with other people. And uh, unless you have the other two in check, I, I know who I am, right? And I know what I'm trying to get done in my life. And I know which lines I won't cross and all the things they teach you at West Point. Right? If those are deeply ingrained in you as virtues, right? your ability to 
work with people, manage people, lead people goes up dramatically. It's really kind of interesting today when we hear uh, people talk about leadership, leadership, leadership all the time. And at the end of the day, I think it comes down to authenticity. And it's just, you're real. You believe what you believe and that's how you lead. And I think people really appreciate that. And, and younger people tend to look at older people and say, yeah, that's, I think you, I think you got something figured out there. What is it? What's that wisdom? So that, that would be my advice. Uh, and so back to Ben, I think that was very wise of him to give that advice to people. And that's what I would tell people as well is without those three things in balance and in check, you're going to, you're going to have a lot of stress in your life and that is unnecessary and be very unlikely to find any real peace, real peace. that's going to, it's going to last long past your business career and that you'll be happy with when you're, if you're 85, right. Or whatever, when you're fortunate enough to live that long, but, uh, long past your business career. Mark, our last segment is what we call giving back. And you've shared an incredible amount of insight and advice that I think will be super relevant for our listeners. If you had to summarize this episode into one or two lines, what would those be in terms of advice for someone getting out of the military now? Yeah. And it's just an easy one because I give this all the time, right? The folks, I, I tell them there's a couple things you need to understand that are realities, right? Before you move forward. And these are just the realities. They can piss you off, right? They can frustrate you. They can, it doesn't matter what your emotion is about them. They just are, right? And one reality is um, that the civilian world and the corporate world has very little idea what to do with a, a, a military resume. And it doesn't matter whether you're a four-star general or a captain. They're just different leadership positions in their minds. You managed more people as a general right now, but they have very little idea what to do with it. And uh, so you need to understand that and put the time and the effort into how to translate what you did in the military into things that people in the corporate world actually understand. And don't assume that they're going to do it for you. They won't. And nor is it their obligation to do that. So, so understand that importantly and spend the time. And, uh, and this is where I help people is to say, hey, let me try to translate that MOS, right, into something that the person at Qualcomm or Palantir Networks actually needs. <laughs> they need somebody like you. They just don't know it yet because you were a ranger platoon leader and they don't know what to do with that at the software company as, as good as you are. So that's the first thing. Realize that's the case. The second thing I tell them is nobody is going to manage your career, whether in the military or in the civilian world. There's different levels of that. If you're fortunate enough to work with good leaders, work for good managers, they're going to help you in your career. But the primary responsibility and obligation for your career is on you. And, uh, and you need to understand that and work hard at it. We talked about hard work before. Work hard at that and take the, the onus upon yourself to do that, which then leads to the next point, which is the single best way to find something great that you're going to love to do and uh, that's rewarding and financially rewarding is, is network. You got to get out there and meet a lot of people. And through those meetings, one meeting leads to three other meetings and three other meetings leads to two more meetings. And that's how you get to understand what's happening in the world. You get to understand what different jobs are, what opportunities they are. And the chance is that somebody come out of the military. And I've given advice to, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate to be able to say this. I've given advice to four-star generals and three-star generals right, coming out of the service to say, thank you for your service, sir. Like, but so let, let's talk about what 
what, what does it mean to be on the board of directors, as an example? If you're retiring from the military and you want to be on a board of directors, like, what does that job mean? What do you do, right? And here's how you can translate what you did in the service into that kind of role to be a member of a board at a big company like Qualcomm. Or, or if you want to go and be an operator, how do you, how do you translate that? And just teaching folks what, what corporate jobs mean. So when you say I'm the head of operations or the chief operating officer, the head of operations or something along those lines in a company, sometimes I'm shocked people come out of the military like, oh, that sounds like me. You know, I say, you, you don't even know what that means. <laughs> you know? So there's a, an education on that side too to say, this is what these job titles mean. And what you want to try to do is find out what your skill sets are and the skill sets that the job titles define are and find the skill set match and don't worry about the title. And that's how you can get in. And then the last thing would be um, sometimes you have to make a left turn or something along those lines when you're coming out where in order to actually move up, you might have to move back a little because as good as a job as you did in the military and as big as a job you did in the military, you're in a corporate environment. It's not a one for one. Like it's sometimes you have to, you got to step back sometimes, right? To learn the corporation, learn the environment, learn the industry so that you can bring immense value to it. But it's not like you're going to walk in the door a lot of times and instantly get it in a SaaS company or a cloud company or something like that. If you weren't doing anything like that in the service. And then, and finally, the number one thing going for vets coming out, right? That, that the people want, whether they explicitly stated or not, they know it. They look is leadership and teamwork, right? They assume that, you know, which was not always the case coming out of service, right? But it is today. They assume that you are going to be a hard worker, that you're a straight arrow, that you're going to, you're going to be a good team player and that you're going to be a leader. That is an enormous advantage over the other resume that's not the military background, right? All of those things have to be proven once you get the job. They're giving you that. Everybody that right out of the gate. So your job is to do the skill set match. How do I translate what I what I skills I developed in the military into skills that you need in the company? But they're going to give you the leg up on all these other things that are so important because because you demonstrated it and you earned it already. And they give you that coming out of the gate, which is a huge leg up. Mark, so very grateful for your time. I'd like to close with three notes that you said, and it's impossible, of course, to encapsulate everything in one minute, but I'll try to do so. Um, Especially three really important themes. One is the mind, body, spirit. And it's especially important for post 9-11 veterans. There's a very prevalent PTSD. It's just so important to get all those right. It's not just about career outcomes. It's can you look yourself in the mirror and feel good about it? Second, of course, is networking, as you've mentioned. And third is, I think Lance and I might rebrand this into the underdog podcast because practically all of our guests who have uh, succeeded wildly have gone through sometimes um, of really rough troughs and managed to get through it. Like Han Kim, who's also a VC and has done exceedingly well. Can't thank you enough. And thank you, Lance. On Point and Character Cut is a production of the WPAOG Broadcast Network. Please take a moment to rate and review the show and join us each week for a new episode. Thank you for listening.